Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The authorities in Hong Kong have made some moves in anticipation of another weekend of protests. The police were arrested and then released prominent activists today. They also rejected plans for a march on Saturday. Let's discuss why this weekend in particular gives the Hong Kong authorities the jitters. With me is Justin C., an expert on the social movements of the Cantonese speakers in China and the diaspora. He's the lead author of the book, the, the lead editor rather of the book, Theological Reflections on the Hong Kong Umbrella Movement. Thanks for joining us, Justin. Hi, Jerome. I wonder if you could explain. Uh, this Saturday is um, – the anniversary of a decision by the Chinese legislature to impose limitations on elections in Hong Kong, the the moment that kicked off the umbrella movement um, five years ago. Uh, can you explain how why this is meaningful? Yeah, I, I think this is meaningful because um, about in 2014, uh, there were uh, some reinterpretations of the system by which Hong Kong exists in relation to the mainland. It's called One Country, Two Systems, and it's enshrined in a mini-constitution called Basic Law. And what it guarantees is that Hong Kong will have universal suffrage, among other things, but that, it, uh, but that Hong Kong will also have a high degree of autonomy from the mainland. Um, the reinterpretation in 2014, both in June and August, uh, basically uh, held that uh, Hong Kong was under Chinese sovereignty and therefore would be subjected uh, in some ways to the uh, to to decisions made on the mainland and um, and when that happened, uh, I remember uh, one speech that uh, the now uh, incarcerated uh, social movement organizer Benny Tai, who organized Occupy Central, he gave in front of I think it was government house. He said that the, the city is burning and that our house is on fire and that there was little that could be done about it. Uh, because he said that there was little that could be done about it, students were upset about that and held student strikes. And collectively, they decided to occupy a central city, uh, a central urban square in the District of Admiralty called Civic Square. And because of police brutality, uh, tens of thousands of people gathered on the streets with umbrellas to ward off tear gas, and that was what the umbrella movement was in 2014. So it's quite a significant uh, an anniversary, I would say. And it, why does it resonate with all the people who've been in the streets here lately? Uh, is this a direct? Is there a direct correlation between what's happening now and that moment? You know, I think if you listen to people on the streets in Hong Kong. Uh, what you hear is that they, 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 they talk about learning the lessons of the umbrella movement. And what they mean by that is that there were some uh, mistakes that they deemed themselves to have made uh, in 2014. They, they, they thought of themselves as very divided in 2014, that uh, they wanted to be a leaderless movement, but uh, whenever there was somebody who had a good idea, that they would get shot down. Because of that divisiveness, they felt that that movement failed. This time, they, they have slogans that say that, you know, we need to be united. And therefore, even though there's dissent, what they try to do is they try to seek uh, some kind of consensus and to leave no people behind. You see all these young people who are protesting, and even if they disagree with the uh, decisions of their peers, they, they leave no one behind, uh, even though they might think that somebody is doing something stupid. Uh, so so there, there, there's some... 
I wouldn't say nostalgia for the Umbrella Movement, but there's a certain memory of the Umbrella Movement in which they say, well, you know, we don't want to make the mistakes of 2014. We want to have a social movement that works. Now, the people that the Hong Kong authorities arrested today, Joshua Wong, some others, uh, they are not exactly calling the shots here in this new movement. What does arresting them do? You know, I, I, I really think that, I mean, the, um, social media has been all abuzz by this. And, I, and the, the, the mantra of this movement has been that it is leaderless. And uh, here I have to sort of uh, give, give a sort of disclaimer uh, for what it means for me to go on the radio with you as well. I am not trying to represent any uh, movement or any protesters. Um, and, and I'm not representing anyone because, again, uh, that would defy sort of the spirit of what's going on here. Um, I, I think there's, there seems to be, though, this sort of uh, need for the authorities to identify what in Cantonese is called a black hand behind the protest, somebody who's manipulating behind the scenes. Um, one of the an, another word just to contrast the black hand is uh, they, they use the word white terror to describe the sort of climate of fear that has been uh, that that the authorities are trying to spread to dissuade people from going to protest and to appear in any sort of public capacity. So I think that there is a sort of uh, deliberate misreading calculated to sort of create perhaps a climate of fear. Um, and the responses that I've seen so far is that uh, they're kind of trying to call uh, the authorities bluff. I'm talking with Justin C. He's lead editor of the book Theological Reflections on the Hong Kong Umbrella Movement, and we're talking about some of the moves that the Hong Kong authorities have made in anticipation of this weekend's protest. They arrested some prominent activists today. There's also been some uh, military movements. There is uh, a garrison that is having a troop rotation right now, and it looks kind of intimidating. What, what is that all about? Mm. You know, I, I think there's a lot of speculation about what uh, the military north of Hong Kong might or might not be doing. Certainly, we've seen we've seen videos of military exercises, and as you say, the rotation in the garrison. Uh, some people point out, well, look, um, the the presence of militarized police, and also uh, and also the the sort of tactics that have been used in the past few weeks are sort of indications that those military tactics are being experimented on, you might say, in Hong Kong already. But the major point, I think, is that um, the the people who are on the streets are basically trying to say that Hong Kong is their home. And if you think about this in terms of global social movement, so not particular to Hong Kong, it's, it's almost sort of like uh, the way that uh, Black Lives Matter might, might uh, protest police terrorism, or the Maidan in Ukraine in 2014 was about police brutality. These are not really, quote-unquote, political ideological stances. They're they're basically saying, I have a home, you're taking it away from me um, with violence, and I don't want violence in my home, which is 
not much of an ideology. Yeah, it's um, it, it, people don't think about that enough. That 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 is a highly motivating thing among some of the uh, resistance that we see out there. They they mm. they want nonviolence. That's right. They and 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 so I, I think there's a lot. There's been a lot of focus on the way that the protests have quote unquote turned violent, or that there has been violence towards property. But I think. You know, if you read the five demands that the protesters have in Hong Kong and towards the Hong Kong government, they're basically saying that they don't want violence in their home and that they would like to leave, live peaceable everyday lives. One of the th- things that um, the protesters wanted to see was the withdrawal of this extradition bill. And mm. Reuters has an article today that says that Carrie Lam thought, well, okay, I, I earlier this summer thought she would withdraw the bill. She would do this thing that she has been unwilling to do. But mm. that the Chinese uh, authorities, the Beijing authorities, they, um, they said no. They said, well, we are not going to uh, allow you to withdraw this bill, and she was mm. not allowed to withdraw the bill because it seems like an easy thing to do. Uh, that's an easy mm. demand to get. If you're not going to pass it anyway, why not withdraw it? This was the subject of a number of press conferences as well. Um, uh, numerous journalists asked her, "Well, if you're if you're going to suspend the bill, which is what she said that she was going to do, why not just withdraw it altogether? Because suspension simply means that." Uh, when the protests are over, it can be re- uh, it doesn't even have to be reintroduced. It just needs to be brought back to life, as it were. Um, so uh, this explains a number of the, the 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 language that she used during those press conferences. She said, "Don't debate about semantics. Uh, it's dead like a cockroach." She says, um, and and they, and people listening to these press conferences would say, um, no, the semantics actually matter quite a bit. Um, the, 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 the larger insight here is that, you know, if Hong Kong exists, it is supposed to exist in a high degree of autonomy in a one country, two systems framework with the mainland. If, if the chief executive of Hong Kong is beholden to the author to other authorities, well, then the, the meaning of high degree of autonomy is uh, up for debate. And so, uh, so I think basically what is, being, uh, what is being talked about in Hong Kong is actually this legal arrangement. Um, and in some ways, um, if you really think about it, uh, it has to do with the question of rule of law. What does it mean to, be, to have enshrined in the law that the territory has a high degree of autonomy, and yet in practice, uh, this, uh, this, these semantics are debated. Uh, I wanted to ask a question about, you know, you were, you were talking about nonviolence in the protests and the demand, mm-hmm. the kind of universal demand for nonviolence. Uh, I was thinking of another thing that was kind of universal in protests around the world that mm-hmm. uh, is may or may not be applicable in Hong Kong, but uh, inequality. Is there is inequality and economic exploitation a um, serious factor here? It certainly is a factor. Now, this has been sort of the um, government party line that uh, if the if only the 
the, the people on the street were satiated in terms of their housing needs. Uh, Hong Kong is a very expensive city. There, are, there is the phenomenon of what, what are called cage houses and subdivided rooms in which people rent a fraction of a small apartment or rent apartments with iron bars as doors. Um, it, or, or if uh, people were uh, – if it were easier for people to start businesses because it's very difficult, um, then – perhaps the people's demands would go away. I think that there is perhaps some legitimacy to this, but what it runs the risk of is, in the words of, the, of one of my theologian colleagues in Hong Kong, Gong Lap Yan, what it does is it reduces a political movement to a social movement. And what that means is that it, it, it reduces some... Uh, the awakening of a sort of political consciousness that people think that people are beginning to think I am a Hong Konger, I am from Hong Kong, Hong Kong is my home. It reduces that to issues of housing and class and economics. And I sort of want to resist that sort of reduction, even though that sort of that, that there are underlying economic factors as well. But so the the dem- democracy demands seem to be more upfront than the inequality demands. I think even more upfront. So the democracy demands were more upfront, especially during the umbrella movement. That's certainly still part of the five demands. But even more than that is the um, is the demand for Hong Kong as a home to be respected. And, and, and the way for that to happen is to have a government that is seen as legitimate by its residents. The authorities just seem more and more impatient with the protests. And the protests, are, you know, the, boy, there have been some gigantic ones recently. Uh, That's right. What, what, what's the rub here? I mean, how do, you, how do we square this circle? Uh, if nobody's going to stand down, what, what happens? You know, this is one of those moments where I say, I cannot predict the future. Uh, I was saying earlier to some friends that even now the news is moving very quickly. Um, be- because, you know, we're, we're hearing about these arrests today. It, it seems to be one thing after another. Um, I, I think that... Um, okay. It seems to me that at issue are the five demands by the protesters. And it seems to me that the five demands are uh, being addressed either obliquely or not addressed at all by the government. Um, If this situation does not change, I sort of feel like it's going to be a vicious cycle. One of the interesting things that's happening, if one pays attention to the lives of students is that school is starting now. So there's that added dimension too to that, that may sort of change um, the events a little bit. Well, we'll there's also an election coming up. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's an election coming. There's an election coming up. And so uh, there, so there might, there, there might be some sort of, um, so some people might say, well, stop protesting. 
uh, start getting involved in local district politics. Um, I've, already, I've already seen that on social media. Some people are calling for that. People are debating them. So I think there, there are those two things that may, uh, that, that may change things you know, later towards this year. Thanks a lot for joining us, Justin C., Lee editor of the book Theological Reflections on the Hong Kong Umbrella Movement. Thanks for joining us and talking about the upcoming protests this week in Hong Kong and in the coming weeks. Thanks, Jerome. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about the climate strike. The 16-year-old climate activist Greta Thunberg has called for a general strike to coincide with the U.N. Climate Action Conference. Coming up after the break, we'll find out how architects are answering the call. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. 16-year-old Swedish climate activist Greta Thunberg brings a new urgency to the climate crisis. She started her school strikes alone, but now has motivated millions of people to demand action. Here she is earlier this year at Davos. The main solution, however, is so simple that even a small child can understand it. We have to stop the emissions of greenhouse gases. And either we do that or we don't. You say nothing in life is black or white, but that is a lie, a very dangerous lie. Either we prevent a 1.5 degree of warming or we don't. Either we avoid setting off that irreversible chain reaction beyond human control or we don't. Either we choose to go on as a civilization or we don't. That is as black or white as it gets. We must change almost everything in our current societies. The bigger your carbon footprint is, the bigger your moral duty. The bigger your platform, the bigger your responsibility. Adults keep saying we owe it to the young people to give them hope. But I don't want your hope. I don't want you to be hopeful. I want you to panic. I want you to feel the fear I feel every day. And then I want you to act. I want you to act as if you would in a crisis. I want you to act as if the house was on fire. Because it is. That's Swedish climate activist Greta Thunberg at Davos earlier this year. Greta's carbon-free transatlantic trip to the U.N. Climate Action Conference has garnered a lot of attention in the press. It's up for grabs, though, whether the people in the U.S. will respond to her call for a general strike. The school strikers in Chicago are asking people to join them for a general strike on September 20th. I Googled around the other day to see what civil society organizations are responding to the call for a general strike, and one of them is Architects. With me is Thomas Jacobs. He's co-founder of Architects Advocate for Action on Climate Change. He's a partner at Crick and Sexton Sexton Architects. Thanks a lot for joining us, Thomas. Thank you for having me. 
Um, I wonder uh, if you could tell us a little bit about our, our architects advocate for action on climate change. I did not know this existed. Yes, we started about uh, in the late uh, summer of 2016. This was the moment uh, building up to the to the presidential election, where only two candidates were remaining, and one of them made the statement that climate change was a hoax perpetrated by the Chinese, and. This was the moment where my head exploded um, as somebody who's always um, cared about this issue. I, I also grew up uh, in the natural environment in Switzerland. We were hiking every weekend. We spent our days in, in nature. Um, so this was a moment where I was actually almost more shocked by the lack of the reaction you know, the statement was... There was no debate about climate in the debates. There was, you know, the only question was from the coal industry and people were more concerned with his red sweater than climate change. It was a very weird scene. Exactly. And um, I just remember that uh, I thought as an architect in particular, I mean, this, this was a full frontal assault on scientific consensus. The things we know work. And I thought it was very strange that there was no reaction. It was there's almost sort of this deafening silence moment. And so we thought we should we should try it, especially architects. You know, we are responsible for creating the built environment, which contributes forty um, percent of greenhouse gas emissions or carbon emissions. And so we really are in control of con- making real change uh, that can turn this around. And so we. Uh, we launched the, the the platform. Now, uh, how did you decide? Uh, how did you glom onto Greta's general strike? Why, why did you decide this is something we should back and we should get behind? Yeah. So we had um, after our our launch, we had done a number of open letters, and you know, we wrote to the new president and all members of Congress, and all the way leading up to the midterm elections, and. We were basically, you know, trying to be a leader on the issue. But what happened is right around the time of the midterm elections in 2018, Greta starts her strike. And, it, you know, it's like nobody knows about it. Um, and in December, so here the, the political realities shift with the House of Representatives going into a much more, uh, you know, in a, in a stance that actually is interested in addressing the issue. And then in December, I remember seeing the talk that Greta gave at the UN Climate Conference in Poland. And I, I, I don't know if your listeners are aware of this, but there is a three-and-a-half-minute video clip of Greta Thunberg in front of the world leaders. And it is, it, it's jaw-dropping in the clarity. The, 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 it was just – for me, it was like – it was like a, a the light bulb went on in that we realized that okay we had been we we're a grassroots a nonpartisan grassroots action platform trying to figure things out here. I see her speech and it's like this paradigm shift where us we the adults who have you know this was on our turf the, the this problem was created with us the adults in the room letting it happen. And to see a six at the time she was fifteen years old, and to see her have the courage to stand in front and, and face the, the 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 uncomfortableness of it, the the courage that it took, it, I was just like, 
it's absolutely clear we have to take her platform and put it behind her. We, we can support her. And that's where we sort of switched our focus and we started the Stand with Greta campaign. Now, how, how many architects are with you on this? You, you've got quite a bundle, and they're from across the country. They're signing things. It's it's not just a Chicago thing. Yes, it's a it's a national thing. We have about ninety firms right now that have taken a pledge. Um, I think there's about seventeen of those are from Chicago, and uh, there's also there's even a handful uh, internationally. But we have asked them to um, basically you know talk to their employees also and and encourage them or, or tell them that if they are interested in joining an issue like that that they should be you know that they should be f- that they should feel free to to join and it's an interesting thing a general strike is something that does not really happen in the US we have big protests sometimes but uh, the idea of a general strike and uh, the school strikes have been kind of modest. The protests have been, you know, not as large as the ones in Europe yeah. or Australia or some of the other places in the world. And so uh, um, you almost have to uh, <laughs> uh, encourage your your people to go, go out and, and take part in it. Yes. That. I think this is a boot camp for the kind of activism that we need. I mean, I'm very curious how many people will show up, how many architects will show up. But this is just – this is the opening act. There will inevitably be more of this next year and leading up to the election. And I see it as a – I mean the truth is in America, we – yeah, it's the, the notion – and we've experienced this as we've talked to our friends and colleagues in the industry. We say, have, are you going to encourage your you – know, are, you, are you talking about this with your staff? And it's, it's a very difficult conversation for, for people. I'm talking with Thomas Jacobs. He's co-founder of Architects Advocate for Action on Climate Change, and he's a partner at Crick and Sexton Architects. And we're talking about the uh, general strike on September 20th. Uh, Architects Advocate for Action on Climate Change is encouraging um, firms to sign up and take part in the th- uh, the activism. Uh, how do you see this with other civil society organizations because, uh, you know, usually if there's a general strike in a country, there's, you know, different societies stand up. It's going to be the school teachers. It's going to be the um, yes. the municipal workers. It's going to be other civil society groups stand up for it. And, and now here we don't seem to have that kind of terrain. I just think we're not there yet. But we have to figure out a way to get there. And so we we also thought as – again, as architects, um, we do see ourselves as leaders and some of it is inherent in what we do. When, you know, when we plan a, a building or, any, or a community, we have to look out into the future to envision it. And so we deal with it every day. And so maybe it was – uh, somewhat natural for us to take this stance. But of course, our hope is that through this action and our involvement that others might, you know, maybe get the same idea. And I, I really think this is necessary. Yeah, I always wonder about um, who is in on sustainability and who the firms that are sustainable. And I, I'm a team leader for Bike to Work Week at the station. <laughs> yes. And 
And I've looked at the rundown of the firms who participate in Bike to Work Week, and there's a billion architect firms yes. who take part. And <laughs> you know, I've had the guy from Studio Gang, who's the team leader, on, and we talked to him. And but these really are the people who are concerned about sustainability. And there are some of the institutions that you would expect: the Field Museum, things like that. Um, but there's other there's marketing firms. There's uh, other firms that seem to you know I, I would have no idea were actually. Um, want to do things, that want to get involved and want to participate in things that are going to make our planet more sustainable. Uh, they're out there, but everybody's got to figure it out. Yeah, and I think that's the awareness piece, right? I mean, what we're doing is creating awareness because the the the, the conversation doesn't exist to a sufficient level yet. And so, you know, I just, on my way here, I came from IIT where I teach and so also our focus or my focus uh, personally is very much on the next generation also. Because my argument is that, again, we, have, we are the adults theoretically in the room. We've had plenty of time. We've known about this issue for decades and we have somehow allowed for this to, for this to go on without taking action. So I think where we need a, uh, an attitude shift is – Along with, and this is where Greta comes in. I mean, she's sort of this example. I mean, I'm my money is on the young people, in that we are now at a moment in human history where they don't have the the same privilege probably you and I had when we graduated and the world was relatively stable. And then we said, okay, and now you go out in the world and test stuff. These days are over. The young people graduating from whether high school or college face a world today where they have to not only learn the trade and make all these experiences, they have to become part of this existential threat. And so I really, I feel for them and or am trying to do everything I can to be honest with them and say, whether you like it or not, but this is where we're at, but there are things you can do. And so my hope is that actually young people, young architects start to push against firms and say, what are you doing? What are your policies? And and ask questions and get engaged. And certainly we see the young people with a similar set of urgency to Greta and the same kind of moral persuasion coming up with the Sunrise Movement and uh, Extinction Rebellion also has that kind of attitude that we must do it now and we must do we must do things that are pretty drastic. That's exactly it. The now is so important. I mean, I literally just talked about that this morning. Is like we have to do it now. So I'm also I'm giving a lecture at at the college uh, in in about two weeks. We are we are trying to organize to get the entire College of Architecture to participate. And if we I, we don't know if it's going to work because it's all you know it's trial and error. It's a it's a live uh, experiment. But if we can sufficiently succeed, maybe the School of the Art Institute and UIC College of or, or School of Architecture. And you know, I, I mean, this is a this has to be a, a snowball effect, and uh, we'll see how how far we can get this this year. You know, in architecture, I always look around and I try and I see a lot of new building taking place, a lot of things going on. And I was like, I go, I kind of look at a building and I think this doesn't look really sustainable. It looks like another glass box to me. 
Um, this looks like another house to me that uh, doesn't have solar panels, isn't using the sun to, 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 to heat itself. Um, these things would seem so simple, we just don't do them. And I don't know if that – and, you know, I have architect friends who say, actually, those new buildings going up are twice as efficient as the whatever they're replacing. And it's, it's not as bad as it looks sometimes. But really, it is – is it um, – are we doing enough when we're building our cities as codes? There's like codes that come in and, you know, are they tough enough? You know, we're gradually upping the codes, but is that, is that enough? Is, uh, is the developers, do they not want to do anything because they have to pay for it all? Or I don't know where the equation is where we say, wow, we're doing enough now. Yeah, you, you know, what your friends are telling you is absolutely true. Of course, that glass box is twice as good as it was whatever, 10 years ago, but it's not good enough. And I, you know, I really, I want to be very clear. I mean, we are, we as a member of the profession of the Chicago architecture profession, and also as a member of our firm, we are as much part of that problem as anybody else. In Chicago in particular, and you know, the Mies legacy at IIT, for instance, and the glass box in particular, we have a glass box addiction. And we know given the information we are presented with now that, you know, things like the ratio between how much glass you have and how much solid wall makes a huge difference. So today we have to, the Chicago architecture community and myself, we all have to, the first step is to acknowledge that we have a problem and we have to talk about it and we have to say, what does that mean? What are we telling people in, in education? And we have to build dramatically higher performing because the codes are not tightening up fast enough. If we go with the speed of, of improvement with the codes, it will take approximately another 150 years to get the carbon drawdown to where it needs to be. Oh. <laughs> That's a problem. That's a problem. Um, I want to um, – give you a chance to say something about uh, September 20th. Uh, the general strike will take place. Uh, if people want to get in more involved, if you want, if there's architecture firms who are listening who want to get more involved, if there's other members of civil society, what do they do? Well, thank you for, for that prompt. I mean, the our main vehicle of, of the pledge and all in, on information is on uh, uh, architects-advocate.com, our, our webpage. There you can uh, find the pledge. You can basically join it, um, and then you you know you're listed on on that web page. On the day of, on the twentieth, we are meeting uh, on fe- at uh, Federal Plaza at eleven thirty. And um, the only requirement, you know, we sort of keep pointing out. This is another thing where you know that. Uh, in this culture, nobody is used to striking because everybody says, "What are we going to do?" And we say, what do you mean? It's grassroots. Figure it out. So even that, like you have to explain everything to everybody. <laughs> so we say, no, just come. Bring a sign. You're a designer. Make it, you know, make it look amazing. Communicate with simple terms. And, and then we'll learn from that experience and we'll be ready for the next global climate strike, we'll, which will happen inevitably soon. It's a movement. Thomas Jacobs is co-founder of Architects Advocate for Action on Climate Change. He's a partner at Crick and Sexton Architects. Thanks for joining us and talking about the general strike on September 20th. Thank you, Jerome. It was a pleasure. 
Coming up after the break, we'll have Weekend Passport, where we let you know how to have an international good time on the weekend, and we'll tell you about a six-hour performance theater piece outside. We'll hear about the Camino Project from uh, Theater Y. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for Weekend Passport, where we let you know how to have an international good time on the weekend. Our global citizen friend Nari Safavi comes in and makes recommendations on how to have fun with an international twist. Great to see you, Nari. Good day, Jerome. It's great to be here again. Well, this is Labor Day weekend, and festivals abound on Labor Day weekend, um, and there's a couple of great ones that, that yeah, pop up Yeah, happy every Labor year. Day weekend to everyone and uh, all the people who labor very, uh, very strenuously to make our economy work and probably don't get appreciated. I want to have make sure that they all have a great Labor Day weekend, uh, and uh, there are a lot of really interesting end-of-summer events going on in the city, and of course, Labor Day weekend is something that... Uh, uh, that uh, the African Festival of the Arts in Chicago usually puts together a really great, uh, great uh, event at Hyde Park. 30th Annual Festival of African Arts is actually the 30th year, and it starts today at 1 p.m. and it goes on through Sunday, uh, through Monday actually, September 2nd, 100 South Cottage Grove Avenue, Chicago. Uh, and the, the, the musical acts are always fantastic. Fantastic. Great reggae acts, great re- West African bands, and all over. Uh, years and years and years, I've uh, heard some of the great, uh, greats of African great music. Food, great, shopping, great food, shopping, great food. Great shopping, <laughs> kind of, exactly. Arts and crafts, stuff for kids to do. So it's just, it's getting so big, it's hard to, getting hard to describe it. It's just, you just got to go there and experience it. 30th Annual African Festival of the Arts on South Cottage Grove Avenue. In Chicago. Yeah, and there is another thing going on tonight that I think would be worthwhile to check out. Who's Who in Chicago, Who's Who, is of, of course, has always been a big brand in terms of recognizing people for what they do. And Who's Who Chicago is having an event tonight at 7 p.m. at a place called the City Hall located at 838 West Kinsey Street. And they're recognizing some of the most prominent Chicagoans involved in community organizing, arts, philanthropy. So there are a lot of really interesting Chicago, blend of Chicagoans being awarded over there tonight. And uh, it, the ticket price is not very high, it's very reasonable. It would be worthwhile to go and check it out tonight. All right, sounds like fun. Sounds yeah. like worthwhile company. Definitely. But uh, last but not least, our our good friends at Theater Y are at it again. They're doing something really interesting and innovative. Uh, They have been here before uh, in our program, before in our segment. But the El Camino project that they have been doing by Theater Y, uh, it's basically something that has to deal with the Camino de Santiago the, the pilgrimage that people take from southern France into Spain, they did that two summers ago and they turned it into an art project, performance art project, and a documentary film is being made about it. They are reenacting some of that at the High Line here in Chicago, and it's really a friendly thing for the entire family to participate. 
Melissa Lorraine is here. She's artistic director at Theater Y. Great to see you, Melissa. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, you know, a couple of years ago when you told us and asked us to come with you on the Camino de Santiago, I was like, wow, you guys are crazy. Um, you're going to walk this 500 miles and then you're going to make a play about it. I, you know... I was anxious to see how it turned out. Yeah, we were too. Um, <laughs> this, this was like uh, ambition beyond ambition. It's very true. And we were all nervous. I mean, our work is usually on a limb, but this is way further out on the limb. Um, as you say, we walked it two summers ago. We invited Chicago to walk with us. And we had a couple WBEZ listeners who joined our pilgrimage as a result of this show. Yay! Yeah. <laughs> um, and then trying to figure out how you turn that into a theatrical production was quite something. Um, how do you pretend to offer an experience like pilgrimage in a brief, uh, concise way? And sure enough, it was clear that you couldn't talk about walking without walking. So we decided that the show needed to be an ambulatory performance. Uh, originally, it was a 12-hour <laughs> show. <laughs> so you're welcome. We cut it down to six. And um, and now it's uh, it's six hours. It's five miles. Um, Josh Flanders from the Chicago Reader says it's worth your time and effort. Uh, we are reader recommended. Picture this post recommended. We were the, listed as one of the top five shows in New City to see this month. Um, they're calling it a theatrical experience unlike any other, a dream come true. Crazy statements are coming out of the audience, and we're the most surprised by the way they're responding, <laughs> honestly. Now, explain how you lay something like this out, because you're starting uh, um, at, like, the 606, and you're walking the 606 and around, and then you're coming back to where you started. And, That's right. Um, and along the way, people meet theater thing. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, so the, choosing the course was one of the first and hardest tasks. What is this route that we do? And it was a combination of an offering of Humble Park from the Chicago Park District and then trying to figure out how we could also end with a meal. So we needed a host for the meal, and that's turned out to be the Bloomingdale Arts Building. So those two factors kind of stapled in early, and then I figured out, okay, how do we, how do we take the audience on an experience? And um, it is, some have called it uh, Dadaism, surrealism. It is not um, a linear story. It is, it not, is not a linear like story. Melissa goes walking and That's then correct. Melissa sees. That's correct. It it's really important to us that the audience is given time and space to have their own experience, to make their own experience, much like the Camino is not a roller coaster. It's a, it's a pilgrimage. So something of the experience has to remain internal, and we're just proposing things constantly to stir the imagination. Um, so it is, it is remarkable the way the city participates in the show, the way that I have fallen in love again with the city through the course of performing this show, because uh, it turns out if you trust the people, they become trustworthy. And so... The the people around us are are um, adding to the experience and sometimes joining in halfway through and walking the rest of the way with us, eating the meal with us, spontaneously joining. You don't bust them for not having a ticket. Well, technically we should, <laughs> but we just can't. We can't bring ourselves to do this. It's it's about hospitality, you know. We we were hoping that by stealing these two components from the Camino, the the walking component and then the the kind of precarity that comes with that. That, the fact that everyone is exposed in some way, um, 
it breeds hospitality. It breeds a unique kind of sympathy and warmth among people. And so then to say, I'm sorry, there's no room at the end feels really counterintuitive. So we've let a few people sneak in. <laughs> well, well, Santiago would never turn anybody That's away. Right. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, so, but I understand that you even like go and issue people a passport from the That's Bureau right. of Transit right. Affairs. Well, so, so there is a way that you initially engage people and there is, yeah, tell us a yeah. little bit about it. Well, we, we knew we... We were out of our depth, you know. We were used to offering an experience within four walls. And so to help us move this many people through the city, we invented a Bureau of Transient Affairs that give you your credentials and that give you a sense that you are exactly where you should be from moment to moment when you're feeling like maybe this is going off script, which, of course, it always is in some way because right. the city is so involved. Um, but it's it's been... Another way to really put the burden on the attendee to have the experience that they want to have, that it's less about um, presenting them with something, it's less about consumerism, and it's more about engaging in time and space for yourself with agency. And we're just, we're just a, a service that's facilitating your travels. Now, at one point during the experience, people have the option of being blindfolded and led around and, or not? That's correct. We were trying to keep that under wraps, but the oh, Chicago it, reader... I no, you're care. fine. The Chicago <laughs> reader was the first to do that. So it's true. Uh, it's true that we give that option. And um, we were expecting very few people to take us up on it. And it turns out that almost everybody opts for being blindfolded, which is a tall order to lead a whole crowd blind through the, through the park. Well, that's got to be quite a sight. It is. It really yeah, is. absolutely. I mean, it's a shock that adults, when given the right circumstances, are, are so ready to play. It's, it's delightful. So what are some of the feedbacks? Do you engage people after they're done with it? And have you gotten any feedback well, you can share with us? We we have a meal together in a very casual, non-theatrical right. way. And so usually theater-wide productions have a talk-back session, but we felt like after six hours, if we haven't talked together enough, <laughs> then we've done something wrong. So right. the meal stands in as a, a kind of talk-back. And the most remarkable thing, I mean, I'll be honest, the goal was always camaraderie and community. But to suppose that people would actually consider these strangers friends of theirs by the end of the six hours felt like an overstatement and or or idealistic at, at the very least. And Josh Flanders from The Reader was the first to say that he felt like he had made a whole group of friends by the end of the day, which is astonishing. I mean, what else can you hope to achieve through the arts? And and it's interesting how the arts can fill in a space that we usually look to politics to, to accomplish. Right. And in fact, uh, politics has limits in terms of what it can actually foster between, between people. And right. this, this experiment, this social experiment is really um, renewing my faith in Chicago and in Chicagoans, to be totally honest. I'm, I'm the most shocked by the way that people are um, rising to this occasion. Oh, I think six hours of uh, stimulating experience ought to be sufficient for a lot of people to at least bond at some level yeah. with uh, people who are you know you know uh, who are going through the journey with you. Yeah. And and the show filters out its own naysayers. You know, people who don't want a six-hour experience aren't there to begin with. So you've already <laughs> gathered together a group of people with time 
that they want to invest. It's free. So that's a theater huge... Theater Y is a free theater that's company. That's right. Yeah. We are a free theater company. So this is, this is six hours of a five-mile trek, theatrical experiences, dance, movement, performance arts, snacks, and a full meal for right. nothing, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> now, uh, Nari and I want to do this. You're doing this from, through September 22nd on Saturdays and Sundays. That's right. And we are working with the Park District to extend to October 13th because it is proving to be very popular. So I know that we will need to extend. So if uh, if you're interested and you can't make it before the 22nd, just check back on our website in a week or so to see whether we've got more tickets to the 13th of October. I can't carve out time this weekend. It's six hours. But <laughs> I'm going to get it soon. No, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, th- this is something that you have to basically... Uh, it's from uh, three, three, to, three yeah. to nine. That's three right. Nine. Exactly. Three so it's, nine, it's, a, it's a big swath of time. It is. It, it is, is a big swath of time. But we were, we've been told it flies by. I and mean, how about really... the young people? Can they... Are they part of this or... We have uh, we have a six month old in the show, but oh, um, <laughs> okay. But um, children, I mean, I I don't know. There's nothing inappropriate about the show. It's uh-huh. it's a it's a you know it's a trek. So I guess that would be the biggest thing about whether or not yeah. to invite children. Are they capable of a five mile trek without becoming weary? But we do have a wheelchair on hand for anybody who suddenly feels they can't manage the walk anymore, or if they would like. Uh, to be in the wheelchair from the start, that's also an You've option. planned a lot of contingencies. Yeah. What's the craziest public thing that's happened so far, like with the interaction with the universe? Okay, well, um, it is Humble Park. So we had a, a gang of like um, four-wheelers and motorcycles who descended upon the show in one moment because anybody <laughs> can show up at any time. And they happened to be in a... In a place where we were going to dance in just a few moments. So I asked them if they would kindly uh, leave for just a few moments while we danced and then they got wind of where the audience would be and they drove their their four-wheelers and motorcycles around the lake and joined the audience suddenly like from all sides if you can imagine this. <laughs> enjoyed the dance. And joined, and, yeah, enjoyed oh the gosh. dance and, and started um, participating in the show. They've actually made a second appearance. They've come back to a second performance at another time. <laughs> Amazing. Bike Join the, the, the thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The Camino Project by Theater Y uh, going through October probably. Uh, check it out. The, the You can sign up and RSVP at Is Free Theater at theater-y.com. Do I got that right, Melissa? Melissa Lorraine is Artistic Director at Theater Y. Thanks a lot. Have a great weekend with your people out there. And Nari Safavi, have a great weekend yourself. Thanks for joining us for Weekend Passport. Happy Labor Day weekend, everyone. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.